Thank you, Pastor Paul. And that uh, hymn, How Great Thou Art, uh, Pastor David mentioned, we actually sang that. If you were here at the Sunday School Hour this morning, uh, I showed you the narrowest part of the Grand Canyon and you're right down in the crystalline basement rocks that are the foundation of every continent that goes back to the creation week. And so we tie up our two boats at the narrowest and deepest part of the canyon, uh, the, the river I mean, and uh, we, we actually float quietly and in the quietness with the walls around us of God's uh, handiwork in creation. We read, we have someone who reads out Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, and then we sing how great they are. And it's a precious time that people remember. Now, of course, those rocks are dated as billions of years old by the secular geologists. And so that's what we want to talk about tonight, that science confirms that the earth is young, just as the Bible teaches. So we're going to start dealing with the issue of the age of the earth, and we'll, we'll circle back to what the Scriptures say later on. But most people don't realise the age of the earth, they think that uh, the geologists have proven it because they've measured it based on the dating of earth rocks. At, uh, and it's proven, therefore, that the earth is 4.57 billion years old. But most people don't realise that the earth's age was never determined by dating earth rocks. That must surprise you. You would think the geologists have found the oldest rocks on earth and that's the age of the earth. No, the earth's claim age was not derived from earth rocks. It was actually de derived from meteorites, from a group of meteorites, the radioactive dating of a group of meteorites. And uh, here it is. It was in the mid-1960s. Um, Claire Patterson at Caltech, uh, he, he, he uranium lead dated or lead lead dated. Lead lead dating is using the two uranium, there's uranium 238 and uranium 235 that have two different lead end members. And we'll come back to that in a moment. So I'm already talking big science. But uh, he, he dated the earth as a result of meteorites. Now, that's a problem because you see, he was assuming that the meteorites represent the earth when it formed. But we know that's wrong because you see, they assume that the, the earth and the solar system formed at the same time, flung out of the sun as a hot molten blob. But you see, they're wrong. Why are they wrong? See, they're assuming an evolutionary history to then prove that evolutionary history, by the way. Uh, but they're wrong. Why? Because the Bible says that in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was created first on day one. The earth didn't come out of the sun as a hot molten blob. The, the, the sun, moon and stars weren't created until day four. By the way, as I said to someone this morning, you know, God talks about making the lesser light, the, the, the moon and the, and the sun. And then there's this little, little phrase at, at the end of a verse, and the stars also. It's almost as if it was nothing to God to make trillions of stars. And we're told elsewhere in Scripture that he knows them all by name. You see, the earth came first, so that's their wrong. God was there, they weren't. 
but it also assumes that the radioactive dating of rocks is an accurate measure and it works perfectly. Well, it doesn't. And we need to explore that because most people think that uh, the, ra- the radioisotope, radioactive dating is such a precise science that it's proven the earth is old. And many, many uh, theologians, for example, have capitulated to the geologists because they think these numbers on rocks must be absolute and therefore they have to somehow fit it into the Bible. Well, let's look at these methods and I hope to make this as simple as possible for you. So some atoms of some elements are radioactive, for example, carbon-14 and uranium-238. Now, don't be worried about those numbers. 14 is the size of the nucleus of the carbon atom. It's so large that it's unstable and it decays back to nitrogen-14. Well, um, uranium-238 is an even larger uh, nucleus and it decays as well. It has too many particles in its nucleus, in their nuclei, and so they throw those out. And uh, the stable, uh, so they want to become stable again. And uh, it takes a little bit of time for that to happen in the case of uranium. Well, today, and that process is known as radioactive decay. The de- decaying atoms are called uh, radioactive isotopes or radioisotopes for short. And uh, they produce uh, uh, elements of stable atoms. So potassium, for example, decays to, uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to argon. Rubidium decays to strontium. Uranium decays to lead. And we'll come to these in a minute. But for the way of illustration, the, the decaying atoms are called parent atoms and the Stable atoms that they decay to are called daughter atoms. They give birth to stable uh, daughters. And here's the ones that we're familiar with. Parent atom carbon-14 decays back to nitrogen-14. Uranium-238 decays to lead-206. Uranium-235 to lead-207. By the way, you've probably heard of uranium and potassium. You might not have heard of rubidium so much. But what about samarium that decays to neodymium? you may not realise that you need some of those rare metals for these. Samarium and neodymium are rare earth metals and neodymium is critical for those wind farms because neodymium put into the magnet makes it stronger and therefore more efficient in generating electricity. And so you hear, you hear people talk about critical metals that China, for example, controls the world supply. Well, that's why we're scram- we've been scrambling here in the US and Australia and elsewhere to find resources so that we don't have to depend on China. And neodymium is one of those elements. Well, what happens? It's quite simple, really. A rock is, ke- got, we go out and collect a sample of a rock and it's chemically tested, send it to a laboratory and they measure how many parent and daughter atoms are in the rock. So if we know the radioactive decay rate and it's remained constant at today's measured rate, then we can calculate how long ago all the daughter was originally parent. And that's the rate rocks say. Let me explain it this way. You're probably glazing over here. But 
Think about an egg timer or a, an hourglass clock, okay? Two glass bowls with sand grains. You put all the sand grains in the top glass bowl and it t- it's supposed to take an hour for all the sand grains to fall to the bottom, okay? I'm using this analogy. It's, it's pretty pretty good analogy, really, when you think about it, because I've put red sand grains at the top and green sand grains at the bottom. The red sand grains are the parent atoms, and the green sand grains are the daughter atoms, okay? And uh, so let's imagine we're cooking a cake, okay? And you in your kitchen and you mix up. By the way, I once said at a church that, you know, the ladies were in the kitchen making the cake and I got chastised afterwards that, you know, men do it too. So I, I have to, have to uh, make it generic here. But you're in the kitchen and, and you mix up the ingredients and you put the the, ingre- the uh, mixture in your cake uh, pan to, to bake it and you put it in the oven. Well, you want to time how long it's in the oven. So you use an hourglass clock. So you start by putting all the sand grains in the top. You walk out of the kitchen. Maybe you've got to go to the garage and you've got to do something or the laundry. And you come back and you want to know how long you've been away. Well, what do you do? You look at that hourglass clock and you measure... Visually, you decide how many sand grains are still at the top and how many are at the bottom. So that's what a geologist does. He gets a rock and he finds out how many uh, parent and how many daughter atoms are in the rock. Well, what if you find that half the sand grains are still at, still at the top and half are down the bottom? How long have you been out of the room? Half an hour, Okay. Because you know the rate at which the sand grains fall because you already tested it. You know, you've used a mechanical watch like this and you've watched all the sand grain. You know it takes an hour. So you've accurately measured your clock. So that's as simple as it, as it gets. The geologist finds out how many parent and daughter atoms there are. And then he, he find, he, he works out how long ago all the green atoms, the daughters, were originally parent. Okay, because he knows how, how long it takes to, for it to fall, to decay, okay? And therefore, you back calculate, and that's the age of the rock. That's how long ago the rock formed, okay? I haven't lost too many of you already. It is that simple because you can, put it another way, you go and see that half the sand grains are at the bottom, half at the top, so you know it was half an hour ago that you baked, started to bake the cake. Okay, and that's exactly the point. The geologists think they can then determine when the rock formed, when the cake was put in the oven. Now, it's quite simple, therefore. So starting with all the sand grains in the top bowl, it takes one hour for all the red sand grains to fall to the bottom as green sand atoms. So a rock is chemically tested for these red and green atoms. And we make assumptions and that's the important thing. You know, whenever you, whenever you see the scientists make a statement about things that happened in the past, you should immediately ask the question, what are they assuming? What are their assumptions? Because the assumptions are critical. If you start with the wrong assumptions, you're going to get the wrong answer. Now, it's just like I said this morning, the, the master of the feast assumed that the grapes had grown on vines and been harvested and, and uh, the wine had, had come by a process when Jesus had actually created. He had the wrong assumptions, okay? So 
If the rate of red oak decay has remained, that is falling at today's constant rate, it can be calculated how long it took the measured amount of green atoms to accumulate them from the red atoms to fall. And so you know how long it's been operating, the hourglass clock, which is the rock's age. So I said, though, that you've got to have assumptions. And there's three crucial ones. And they're even more crucial when it comes to these dating methods, okay? Remember our analogy? Three crucial assumptions, okay. What about what would happen if all the sand grains at the bottom hadn't come from the red sand grains at the top? What about, what if you didn't know the initial, you weren't there at the beginning and maybe there were red, there were some green atoms already in the hourglass clock at the bottom when your clock started. If you weren't there at the beginning, you see, the geologists weren't there millions of years ago when the rock formed. So how do they know the original amounts of parent and daughter atoms? Why would, why would there not be daughter atoms in some of these rocks? Why would the earth give you the same age as meteorites? Well, because God made the meteorites of the same stuff as the earth. The meteorites come from asteroids and uh, some of these asteroids have a core and a mantle and a crust exactly like the earth. Well, well, obviously, God, God used the same design and used the same stuff to make all these different things. And God loves variety. So why wouldn't he make the daughter atoms as well as the parent atoms? And, that, and the, parent, the daughter atoms didn't come from radioactive decay at the beginning. You see, if we're not, we weren't there at the beginning to know the initial conditions, how can we be sure that our clock works? And so assumption number one is there were no green atoms at the bottom of the glass bowl at the beginning. And I'm going to give you some examples where these assumptions are shown to fail from the very literature that the scientists refer to. In every case, you you need an observer because we weren't there in the past. So assumption number two is that all the daughter atoms measured today must have only come from radioactive decay in situ of the parent atoms. In other words, the, the, the glass bowls were a closed system. Well, when, you, when, you, when you're out of the room, you didn't know that your mischievous 10-year-old son came in and lifted the lid and put a more, few more red sand grains at the top so that when you came in and looked at the, did the measurement, you thought you'd been out half an hour, but actually you'd been longer because the system was contaminated, it was open. So that's the second assumption. All the green atoms must have only come from the falling of the red atoms, that is, there's been no contamination. And that requires an observer. Have the geologists been there for millions of years to watch these rocks not having been contaminated? No. By the way, most of the samples they collect to date are collected at the surface of the earth. Now, I can take you down a mine shaft down uh, you know, half a mile or more and I can the rocks down there I can show you I still show the effects of weathering. Weathering contaminates rocks. Most people don't realise that some of the uranium deposits form as a result of weathering of background amounts of uranium that's concentrated by water carrying it 
in solution and then it's deposited in, in a concentrated manner and that's why it becomes economic to mine it. So we know that contamination is a problem and I'll give you some examples in a minute. And then the obvious third assumption is that the rate of radioactive decay has been constant at today's measured rate. That means the red atoms have always fallen at the same rate to produce the, the green atoms as we measure them. And that requires a, an observer as well. Have the geologists been there for millions of years to check that radioactive decay has been constant? You know, so as I say, what if your mischievous 10-year-old also put in a few drops of water into the glass bowl? What's that going to do? It's going to clog it so that the, the falling rate slows down. How do we know that the decay rate has, has not been constant or has been constant in the past? So assumption one, number one, all the parent atoms, daughter atoms derive from parent atoms, no initial inheritance. Assumption number two, no other processes have affected the parent-daughter relationship, so there can't be contamination. And three, constant decay rates, no changed rates. Well, it should be obvious that none of these assumptions are provable. The past cannot be observed and measured and tested, and these assumptions are not even reasonable because we know that these three assumptions have been repeatedly falsified. And I'm going to show you that tonight. They're falsified. Daughter atoms are known to have been inherited when rocks form, but even when not detected, it doesn't mean there isn't any contamination. I, I can show you examples where the geologists thought they had a perfect result, and yet the sample later, they showed that the samples were contaminated. And... Uh, Assumption number one, the inheritance is often violated. And so contamination is common and uh, it's often, uh, that, that assumption is often violated. So several lines of evidence have also demonstrated conclusively that decay rates were grossly accelerated during a recent past catastrophic event. Do you know of a recent past catastrophic event? The flood. Geological processes were accelerated at rates we can't even imagine. You know, some people say to me, how can, how can all those layers have formed during the flood? We can't even devise an experiment to replicate that. And so we can't, we can't understand how catastrophic the rates were to generate all the layers that we have and buried all those creatures to make the fossils and it all happened in, in less in about a year, well, if all these other geological processes were accelerated during the flood, then why not radioactive decay? And so uh, we can demonstrate that the assumption no change rates is also violated by evidence of accelerated radioactive decay. Now, before I give you the examples here, I want you to understand that I'm not questioning the quality of the chemical analyses. When we send a rock to a lab, the chemists do a brilliant job in doing their analyses. I can send several pieces, I can break a rock up, sample up into several pieces and I can send the several pieces to different laboratories and I guarantee I'll get, you, get the same result. Uh, they, they, they built... They built, they spend millions of dollars building these laboratories. And so they do excellent chemical work. 
but you get a chemical analysis and that chemical analysis has to be interpreted using those three assumptions. So it's not the analyses that's disputed, it's the interpretation of the millions of years ages because of these three unprovable, repeatedly falsified assumptions. So my first example, let's go to Mount St. Helens. Back in uh, 20... Uh, I've almost forgotten it was, 1980, it blew its top. And uh, the top part of the mountain was blown off and a new lava dome formed in the crater. And the geologists watched and they could see the lava flows building that crater and they knew the exact day when all these layers were formed. And so it was very easy to go in and get a sample, samples there. My colleague, Steve Austin, went in and got samples. And here we see... Uh, the 1986 day site lava flow. It was about October 1986, in fact. And so he sent that sample to a laboratory for analysis. He didn't tell them where it came from. And he, he sent it to them in 1980, uh, 1996. So he knew that the rock was only 10 years old because we'd watched it formed. Okay. What results did he get? Well, the whole rock sample gave an age of 0.35 million years. He separated the different minerals and the different minerals gave different ages as well. In fact, one mineral, pyroxene, gave an age of 2.8 million years. Why? Well, the answer was already there in the literature because you see what comes out of volcanoes? Gases. And argon was in, is in the volcanic gases. In fact, most of what comes out of a volcano is steam, water in the form of steam. And uh, when the, some of that argon was actually trapped in the lava when it crisp, cooled and crystallised. So argon was inherited by the rock when it formed. It was argon that hadn't formed from radioactive decay of potassium in situ within the rock. And so that's why I've got the conclusion here. It was inherited excess, excess argon. And we know that from the literature. If you fly into the big island, into the airport at Kona, just beside the airport, well, on the airport is on a lava flow and the, and the golf course is right nearby. That was an eruption in 1800 and 1801. And yet it gives ages up, that lava gives ages up to 1.4 to 1.6 million years for a recent lava flow because it inherited the argon. And so here's some other examples uh, of, of that. It's well known in the geological literature. It's been known since the mid-60s, 1960s, that this is a problem with this method, but they keep on using it. Well, they took 10 diamonds from the Democratic Republic of Congo, Congo and they dated it using potassium argon. They didn't just use one sample, they used a number of samples. And guess what? The diamonds came up with an age of six billion years. Well, they knew that was wrong because how could the diamonds be older than the earth itself? And so they knew that it obviously the diamonds had inherited extra argon. In fact, they went in and found that there were bubbles in the diamonds, little micro micro bubbles and there was argon in the bubbles. It hadn't come from radioactive decay of potassium. So we know it's an issue. Here's another interesting example. In the Grand Canyon, uh, in the eastern Grand Canyon, we've got lava flows down the bottom there. They're called the Cardenas Basalt. 
They're in the rocks that were formed before the flood or right near the beginning of the flood, just before the flood. And there are lava flows that are so recent that uh, there's volcanoes still on the rim of the canyon. The lavas flow down the walls of the canyon and some of them you can still see congealed to the walls and they blocked the Colorado River and dammed it up for miles and the, the river burst through. And so they're very recent. They're younger than the Grand Canyon itself. They're the youngest rocks in the Grand Canyon. And the Cardenas basalts down the bottom are the oldest lava flows in the Grand Canyon. They're supposed to be over a billion years old. And here's, here's one of those volcanoes and here's where the lavas flow down the walls of the canyon. Now, now Pastor David will remember this. Just around the, you can see the river down there. That's the Colorado River. Just around the corner to the left is the fastest navigable rapid in North America. 19 seconds of sheer terror. When I went through there in uh, April, the waves were 30 to 40 feet high in that rapid. So that's what I mean, sheer terror. Well, here are these ancient lava flows in the eastern Grand Canyon. Okay, again, you can see where they are. Well, what is the rubidium strontium age of these lavas? Here it is. They've got the same rubidium strontium age within the experimental error margin. How can the youngest rock in the Grand Canyon, that's probably so recent that Native Americans saw the eruptions, give an age of over 1.1 billion years, the same age as the oldest rock, the oldest lava flow in the Grand Canyon. Why could that be the, the, the case? The answer is that these lavas came from the same source. Most people don't realise that basalt comes from down in the upper mantle below the Earth's crust, and that means these lavas came from the same source under the Grand Canyon and they represent not real ages, but they represent the chemistry of the same source. Now, if that's, if, if that's the problem with, we know that these recent lava flows are recent, okay? If, if they give a, 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 an age of over a billion years, how do we know that we can trust the old age? You can go to different ocean islands around the world, you know, Hawaii, uh, Canary Islands, the, um, the, uh, um, some of the other islands, the Ascension Islands, Easter Island, Reunion Island, etc. And you can take recent lava flows and you can test them for uranium lead and you'll discover that they all give ages of between one and two billion years for recent lava flows. And this has been known in the geological literature for over 50 years, and it's called the lead paradox problem. Now, you see, if we can't date the recent lava flows accurately, how can we date the old ones, the older ones? Could they not also have had contamination and inheritance of these isotopes back from the beginning? You see, the geologists believe that the reason these lavas give one to two billion year old ages is because it reflects the chemistry of the mantle source. Well, wouldn't that be the case with the ancient lava flows as well? And yet they use these methods to date the ancient lava flows as millions of years old. What about contamination? Here's an example from Colorado. Okay, and I've tried to make this simple. On the left, you can see that there's a granite. Okay, and it's supposedly 54 million years old. 
on the, on the right is the host rocks. The granite came as hot molten material. It intruded into these, these older rocks. This is supposed to be 1.375 uh, or 1,375 million years old. Well, you know what? They found when they dated those host rocks that they became younger as you went towards the granite. Why? Because the heat and the water that came out of the granite contaminated the host rocks. And so we're not talking about small scale, we're talking thousands of feet of contamination from that granite. So we know that water, hot water and heat can contaminate these rocks. Well, here's another interesting example. You know, the geology, and this is at the micro scale. We've got two grains of a mineral called biotite that are side by side, okay? And each of those stars represent an analysis that was done with a, with a tiny little probe and, and they're measuring a, witness, a thickness less than the size of a, a thickness of a hair, our hairs. And so they're doing essentially a point analysis. And what did they find? Okay, they did a sequence in this second grain. What did they find? They found that it got younger the further you went into the grain. Well, that's because you had contamination come along that boundary. These grains have, have got a sheet structure and therefore there was contamination coming in. There. So, you know, even the micro scale, we can see the effects of contamination. Here's another interesting example. Granites, and I've depicted this here, have a mineral in them called zircon. It's called zirconium, so the mineral is zirconium silicate. It has uranium in it and it's radioactive. Um, zirconium is a very important metal and it's mined using zircon. But these grains form when the granite cools. They form when the granite... So that you would think that the minerals in the rock would give you the same age as the rock as a total. If you took a sample of the rock and crushed it up, you get the same result if you took one of the minerals and dated it. Well, here's what they get. Zircon grains in a Himalayan granite, supposedly 21 million years old, the zircon grains in it gave an age, uranium-lead age of 1,753 million years. How could the, how could those grains be so old? Of course, they then say, oh, well, the zircon must have contaminated the granite. But wait a minute. The opposite, we know that granite, the zircon forms when the granite cools. It didn't get inherited from somewhere else, an older rock. We see the same thing in Australia a granite that was dated at 426 million years by Rubidium stronium had zircon ages up to 3,500 million years. That, that just doesn't make sense. These, these, these minerals were contaminated and they've contaminated the granite. Here's an interesting example, by the way, another one, a Himalayan granite supposedly 20 million years old contained zircon grains, one mineral, that gave uranium-lead ages up to 1,483 million years, but they also had another mineral in it called monazite that's radioactive, and it gave uranium-lead ages of minus 97 million years. In other words, minus 97 years old means that the rock hadn't formed yet. 
which, which is the correct age of the rock? Minus 97 million years, 20 million years, or 1483 million years? Well, you pick the one that suits you, what you want, don't you? Here's another interesting example. Again, with a, a microbeam, a focused microbeam, so as the thickness of a human hair, they're actually dating a spot on this crystal. And when they rotated the crystal to date it on different faces, they got different ages. Here they are. The ages varied by 500 million years on different faces of the same crystals. And they repeated it with multiple crystals, 74 analyses on 47 crystals. Well, I said before that there's evidence of accelerated nuclear decay or radioactive decay, and here it is. We're coming to it right now. We've talked about inheritance. We're giving you some examples. We talked about contamination. But here's the four major methods that are used to date rocks. And geologists usually only use one of those methods on a rock. They choose the one that's the most convenient. Rarely do they s- submit all samples of their samples for all four methods. And uh, the reason they don't do that is because they assume that no matter what method they use, they get the same age for the rock. And in theory and practice, they should, because it's like having four hourglass clocks stacked on the, on the stage here, on the platform. Each of them have got different size sand grains. But remember, we started with all the clocks having the sand grains at the top. And in real time, the sand grains fall to the bottom. And so they should give you the same age, even though they've got different sized sand grains or different sized atoms. And so that's why they only use uh, one, one or two methods. Well, we decide, we'd, we'd expect, what would we expect if we use all four methods? And so we did some experiments by collecting samples in the Grand Canyon. And we didn't just use one, one sample, we used multiple samples in a method called the isochron method because it gives you better statistics in your calculation. And so what would happen if you used all four methods on the same rocks? Well, the Cardenas basalt, we met that before. Here it is, the lava flows. You can see that's the view from the uh, Desert View Tower, which is the easternmost overlook point in the, in the Grand Canyon. There are those lava flows and there they are up close and personal and uh, we collected them something like six different lava flows. What, what results do we get? Potassium argon, 516 million years. Rubidium strontium, 1,111 million years. Samarium neodymium, 1,588 million years. Which one is correct? None of the, what about none of the above? How will we know without an observer? Notice that the potassium argon age is the youngest and the rubidium is, young, is the next youngest and the rubidium is younger than the Samaria neodymium. Well, let's look at another example. This is where the molten rock, instead of being erupted from a volcano, got squeezed like molten toothpaste between the layers under the ground and cooled under the ground. The geologists call that a sill. And uh, if you're ever driving uh, in New York City and you drive on the Palisades Freeway, you'll pass one of these sills. It's called the Palisades Sill, there by the Hudson River. And... Uh, this is actually 300 feet thick. Yes, we climbed to the top. Well, I climbed to the top and we collected samples all the way down. And what results did we get? 
Potassium argon, 841 and a half million years. Rubidium strontium, 1,060 million years. Lead, lead, 1,250. Samarium neodymium, 1,379 million years, which is the correct age. How would you know without an observer? By the way, notice the potassium was the youngest, rubidium the next youngest. What I didn't tell you before is that the uh, lead and the uranium and the samarium decay by alpha decay, whereas potassium and rubidium decay by beta decay. They're different types of decay within the nucleus of the atoms. So in other words, the beta decays will give you younger ages than the alpha decays. That's interesting. There's a systematic pattern here. And the other interesting thing is the larger the atomic weight, the size of the nucleus, the, and the longer the decay rate, the bigger the age, the more, the, the bigger the age. Isn't that interesting? There's a pattern here. And then we took samples of these rocks here that are uh, metamorphic rocks. These are metamorphosed basalts. And we got results like this, rubidium, 1,240 million years, lead, lead, 1,883 million, Samaria, Nedim, 1,655 million years. See, which is the correct result? What about none of the above when I mean, you didn't have an observer there? See, if all these clocks were accurate, they would give you the same age as, the, as what we get for the, uh, for example, in the Cardenas basalt. Why would we get different ages? Well, if they were ticking at different rates in the past. Let me, let me explain. In other words, if the potassium clock ticked rapidly through 1,566, 16 million years, remember, these clocks all started at the same time. In a, there was a real time period between when the rock formed and today. The potassium clock ticked through 516 million years while the rubidium tritium clock ticked through in the same real time period, 1111 million years, and the Samaritan clock in the same real time period clicked through 1588 million years. So in other words, the decay rates were faster in the past. And we can explain this disparity in the ages by a systematic process that was going on to dealing with the strength of the nuclear forces holding. God only had to change slightly the, the, the holding of the atoms within the nucleus and it would speed up the decay rates. So if the decay, if these assumptions are not correct, then we can't, they can't possibly accurately yield ages of absolute ages of claim millions of years. So, Assumption number one, all the daughter atoms is derived from parent atoms, violated by inheritance. No other processes have affected the parent-daughter relationship, violated by contamination. Assumption number three, constant decay rates, violated by accelerated decay rates. And by the way, you think about it for a moment. A lava flow that formed in the first month of the canyon, um, first month of the flood year, it's at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, it's gonna, it's gonna tick through a year of accelerated decay. Whereas a lava flow formed at the top of the Grand Canyon in the last month of the flood, say, is only gonna tick through a month of accelerated decay. So it will give a younger ages. So that's why the results seem to be in a systematic order because it reflects the order in which they were formed during the flood. But the acceler- the ages aren't absolute. They're just relative. Well, the evolutionary scientists, why do they claim, therefore, 
and ignore these assumptions? Well, it's because they give them the result they want. Okay? And uh, the isochron technique, that's multiple samples, eliminates the need to know the initial conditions and supposedly uh, indicates contamination, but that's not always the case. And the reason why they say the methods work is because they give them the ages they want. You see, think about it. If there weren't millions of years, there'd be no time for evolution to occur. Why did Charles Darwin's idea of, of evolution take off in 1859? Well, it was because 20 years earlier, 30 years earlier, Charles Lyell had promoted the idea of millions of years. And Darwin dedicated his book on the origin of species to Charles Lyell because without the millions of years, you can't, you can't get time for evolution. And that's why the age of the earth is such a critical issue. Well, very quickly, how reliable and objective are the measured decay rates anyway? And there are two parameters by which decay rates are measured and expressed. There's what we call the half-life, okay? What, you've heard that expression, some of you, the half-life. Well, it's basically this. If you start with a pound of uranium, after one half-life, there's only half a pound left. After another half-life, you've only got a quarter of a pound left. And so it decreases with time, okay? So that's a measure of the radioactive decay rate. And these methods, these, these, uh, there's three methods that have been used to measure these decay rates. Yes, you can do it. You can do a direct counting. You can take a pound of uranium, you can stick a Geiger counter and let it tick for a year. Now, you all chemists know, don't you? The chemists know that you, there's, there's, Six to, there's Avogadro's number, isn't it? Six times 10 to the 23 atoms in a mole, okay? So you can work out how many radioactive uranium atoms are in that pound of uranium. The Geiger counter measures how many decayed in a year, so you can work out the decay rate. It's not that difficulty. And uh, you, can, you can measure the, you can measure, start with a sample with no daughters in it and leave it on the bench and after a year, you can measure how many daughters there are. And so that's what we call in-growth, measurement of the daughter isotopes. Or you can compare the radioisotope ages. And here's where it gets tricky. Here's where it gets tricky. Let me, let me explain this, okay? Over the last 70 or so years, they've tried to determine the half-life of potassium-40. And they say it's 1.248 billion years. But... Because there are uncertainties, how do they ultimately derive that number? Well, they do it by taking a sample that they know the age of from uranium-lead dating, and if they get a different potassium-argon date, they change the decay rate for potassium to make the age agree with the uranium age. Well, that's a bit sneaky, isn't it? That's a bit sneaky. Well... Here's another example. Determinations of the rubidium strontium decay rate, 48.8 billion years. Well, they've used earth materials and meteorites compared with only two groups of analyses and they've got differences. And so the only way they can reconcile these is by, again, taking the age of the known age by uranium lead and adjusting the decay rate of rubidium 
so they get the samples to agree with the same age. Again, they're tweaking, they're tweaking the sleight of hand here to, to change the decay rate determination to match so the ages agree. What it, we've just seen there's evidence that the ages don't agree, but they're making them agree deliberately. And the same with Sumeria. You know, they determined it 100, 106 billion years and it was settled in the 1970s based on comparing the ages of the meteorites using Sumerian neodymium with lead, lead. And even though, even though they've had it, another experiment since that time that disagrees, what do they do? Well, they tweak the, they tweak the Sumerian decay half-life so it, it agrees with the uranium lead ages of the same samples. That's not very honest at all. What about uranium? which is supposed to be the benchmark. 85 years of direct counting, can we be certain that the half-lives are accurately known? Well, the interesting thing is they're not accurately known. And the problem is that the ratio of the two uranium atoms, 238 and 235, isn't precisely known because what they've found recently is that there's very significant differences in that ratio in different rocks, meteorites and minerals. And so that means they have to, all the uranium lead dates are not accurate. That's interesting. Here's some of this variation. I don't have time to, but you can see there that there's a great variation in different minerals and different uh, meteorites. And so there's uncertainties in these decay rates. And these two problems make all the uranium lead dating subject to large uncertainties. And if that's the case, then all the other determinations have uncertainties. And therefore, none of the radioactive dating is accurate. As we said before, inheritance, contamination, Non-constant decay rates make all the radioactive dating methods totally reliable, unreliable and unusable. And therefore, we cannot, they cannot provide absolute ages for all the rocks and minerals. The age of the earth was determined assuming an unobserved evolutionary history that is regarding the meteorites that is contrary to the explicit statements of God's word, as I said before. Well, as we draw to a close, I want to quickly talk about other methods that have been used to date the age of the earth. All scientific methods, by the way, are based on unprovable assumptions. Even the examples I want to give you quickly in a moment. What we do is we choose a rate, a process whose rate can be measured in the present. We assume certain starting conditions which we believe are reasonable, but we can't prove them because no scientist was there to see them and watch them. And then we assume that the rate has been constant, whoops, the rate has been constant with time. Even though we weren't there to check those decay rates with time, and I'm going to illustrate this so you understand what I'm talking about. All processes can only ever give a qualitative maximum age for the earth. There is no absolute scientific proof for the earth's age. And so there's been many methods that have been used to date the earth historically and can do so today. What most people don't realise is that only 10% give an old age and over 90% give a young age. Let me give you a few quick examples. Comets. 
Comets are essentially dirty snowballs. They're ice and dust. So when a comet comes past the earth and comes around towards the sun, the sun knocks off some of the ice and dust and that's what streams out behind it, shines as the tail. And so the comet is actually disintegrating. And most of the comets <coughs> we've watched, we've seen them come back and they get, that's why Halley's Comet is not as spectacular every time as it returns because it's progressively disintegrating. <coughs> and the comets are said to be as old as the solar system itself. But the lifetime of these comets is less than 10,000 years. After 10,000 years, they should have all been gone. But there's still some around. So that means the solar system is less than 10,000 years. The Earth has a magnetic field. It's generated by electric currents in the Earth's core. And with real-time measurements have shown that the strength and energy of the Earth's magnetic field is getting weaker and weaker every halves itself every 1,400 years. So in other words, 1,400 years ago, the Earth's magnetic field was twice as strong as it is today. We also know that the Earth's magnetic field reversed during the flood. Why? Because of all the movement of the lavas inside the Earth, the molten rock coming out, that affected the balance of the Earth's magnetic field and it changed direction. So here's these, and so that would also cause a more rapid loss of energy. And if you look at these historic measurement, they, they confirm a rapid loss. If we go back in time and we can check this, we can take magnetic particles in pottery that we know the archaeological age of and biblical age of, and we can test the magnetic field that was there when they, the potter made the pots, and we know that it was stronger in the past. And so if we go back in time, the Earth's magnetic field back 10,000 years ago would have been as strong as a magnetic star. Well, that doesn't make sense because the Earth wouldn't be able to cope with a magnetic field that strong. So the maximum age of the Earth from the magnetic field decays only less than 10,000 years. What about the Earth's oceans? They're getting salty. All that salt that gets washed down by rivers ends up in the oceans. And we can figure out how much salt is going in and how much salt is coming out of the ocean. And we can take sodium. Sodium chloride is common salt, but there's other salts. And we can figure out that uh, the Earth's oceans, if we start, as they say, with a, a freshwater ocean, uh, which they claim is three billion years old, but wait a minute, the salt we got today in the ocean would get there in a maximum of only 62 million years. Ah, but wait a minute, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Would God, have, would God have started with a freshwater ocean? No, he made saltwater fish. Okay, so we're probably wrong about the initial assumption of a fresh ocean. So this is what I mean about you've got to assume the starting conditions. And then remember I said that erosion takes salts and puts them in rivers that takes them down to the ocean. It makes it saltier. When would there have been a lot of erosion that put a lot of salt in the ocean? During the flood. Most of the Earth's salt, the salt in the ocean probably got there during the flood. So that age of 62 million years is way, way too big because it's based on the wrong assumptions. But that's a maximum qualitative age. What about biological materials? You've all heard about the dinosaur soft tissue. I mentioned this morning at the Sunday school class about the ink. 
in a squid that's supposedly 400, over 400 million years old still there. It hadn't dried out in 400 million years. And so it goes on. DNA in Neanderthals, supposedly thousands and tens of thousands of years old, and yet dinosaur red blood cells. How can they be 70 million years old when we know that red blood cells decay? And then radiocarbon. You know, we took, uh, we took, uh, and I did this work too back in the 1990s, but during the a project that I was involved in, we took 10 coal samples from all around the US that were stored in a Department of Energy repository under special conditions to preserve them. And we sent them for radiocarbon dating and they all got the same radiocarbon age, even though they were supposedly millions of years old. Most people don't realise that if every atom of the earth was radiocarbon, it will all be gone in a million years. There'd be none left. That's why they don't, don't, don't date dinosaur fossils with radiocarbon. And yet the interesting thing, every fossil that's being tested, every coal sample, every oil, oil sample that's been tested has got radiocarbon in it, which means those materials aren't that old. And when you consider the Earth's magnetic field was stronger in the past, that affects the rate of radioactive, uh, sorry, radiocarbon formation in the atmosphere. And so those ages are even way too large. The interesting thing is we found that no matter whether the coal sample was supposedly 40 million years old or 300 million years old, it had the same radiocarbon age. Why? Because they're all trees that were alive the day before the flood. They all died at the same time, so they should give you the same age. And, you know, diamonds, we've even, we've even looked at diamonds that are supposedly one to three billion years old and they've got radiocarbon in them. They're the hardest known substance that can't be contaminated. What about, why are there so few, few human fossils, by the way? And there's no human fossils from before the flood because God said he was going to utterly destroy man, blot him out. Why are there so few Stone Age human remains? They say that the Stone Age lasted for 185 million years, you know, We'll come to this in a moment, but how long did it take to produce the 8 billion people that are alive today? Not very long at all. So where are all the Stone Age fossils of humans? We don't find their graves. Where are their remains? We only find thousands. And so I could go on. All these methods, by the way, I should have told you, okay? What about the human population? I didn't include this, but I'll add it. If you start with, with uh, Noah and his family four and a half thousand years ago with uh, a growth rate of human population, growth rate uh, slower than today's rate, you get the, human, the population today in all that time. If, if, if evolution were true and man evolved a million years ago, there ought to be one person on every square foot of the earth's surface with 16 other people stacked on their shoulders. Where are they all? So you see, many of these methods give a young age. All scientific evidence for the age of the earth, as I said before, involves unprovable assumptions. There were no human witnesses there to check those assumptions. All these methods can only ever give you a maximum qualitative age. Our only certainty is the God-breathed eyewitness account in the scriptures of the earth's age and history. So why should the observations of the world around us by finite, fallible, fallen humans interpreted by rejecting the authority of God's word 
be given precedence over the clear statements of God's, God's breathed eyewitness account in the Scriptures. And you see, this is where I take issue with Christians who have compromised. They're saying the scientists, though better than God, they, their methods are more accurate than God's record in the Bible. It's as simple as that. We either have to trust God's Word in every detail or it all goes out the window. As I said this morning, if Jesus isn't the truth, He's not the way or the life. Remember what I said this morning, just before John 3.16, Jesus said, I have spoken to you of earthly things you do not believe, then how will you believe if, you, if I speak of heavenly things? And revision again, Jesus said, the creation which God created, and from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. You see, it wasn't after billions of years of cosmic, geological and biological evolution. See, this is the secular time scale. Man is only the last thing at the end of time, billions of years after the earth formed. No, Jesus said from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. That's right. Man was made on day six. God, uh, the earth was made on day one. So the earth is, the man is only five days older than the earth. That's back at the beginning. And, and why do we know that that's the case? Well, God said to Moses on Mount Sinai, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. For six, six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth to see all that it is and rested the seventh day. By the way, when did the first day begin? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 1 is the beginning of the first day because it says here in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, that in six days, God made the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And how do we know those were ordinary days? Well, because if they were millions of years, the children of Israel have to work for millions of years before they got a day off. And by the way, this is repeated in Exodus chapter 31. It says, these words were written with the finger of God. If God can't be trusted here, how can we trust him in John 3.16? The earth age matters because we, Adam and Eve didn't walk on a fossil graveyard in the Garden of Eden. There couldn't have been fossil thorns underneath their feet that are supposedly 400 million years old because the Bible specifically says that thorns didn't come after man, until after man sinned. In Genesis chapter 3, there were no thorns in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. The Bible says that with sin brought death. You see, it's very tragic and I won't delay here, but just a few weeks ago, we lost my mother-in-law. My, my wife comes from a non-Christian family and we've been witnessing to her for many, 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 many times. And you know what I discovered? She let, let, let it out just before she died. What was her big problem? The biggest question you get is if God is a God of love, why is there all the death and suffering in the world? We need to have the answer because we have the answer in Genesis. We need to tell people the bad news in Genesis before they'll accept the good news. I, I, I pine for the fact that we didn't get enough time to explain to her where death and suffering came from. You see, remember, people look at the world today and think well, we're studying God's creation. No, we're studying God's restoration. The earth has been restored 
from the judgment of the flood. That's why we've got the fossils. All the death and suffering is there because of man's sin that God had to judge the world. Yes, it's a beautiful world, but it's His restored world. It's not the world that God made. And we've got to tell people that. Because you see, you know, we look at the flowers and the bees and the birds and the, the rocks and we say, this is the world beautiful. Well, it is beautiful, but it's not the way God made the world originally. Man messed it up and God had to judge it. And you see, unless we tell people why they need a saviour because of their sin problem that brought death and suffering into the world, they'll never understand the good news. And so that's what we need to know, to remind them. If we cannot trust Genesis, therefore, when it talks about the young age of the earth, as I said this morning, what about those genealogies? That's to tell us that God is our, Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. We can trace his family history all the way back to Adam. That's why he could come to die as the second Adam, the last Adam on our behalf, because he was related to the first Adam. And so if we can't trust what Genesis says, we can't trust God's offer in John 3.16. There cannot be any compromise on the age of the earth because the millions of years are based on an assumed, unobserved evolutionary history that is contrary to the explicit statements in God's Word. That's why the earth's age matter, because Jesus' death and resurrection matters. That's the only hope that we have. If that isn't true, then we're all men most miserable when we close down this church and go home and be miserable like everyone else. That's why I'm passionate about this issue because God's Word matters right from the very first verse. Well, sorry I've gone over time, but there's still time for questions. Um, if you've got a burning questions, I covered a lot of details tonight, but I wanted to put in some technical details because we've got some young people here and they're gonna face these issues as they go out into the world out there. And these guys have got roving microphones. So if you want a question, put up your hand and they'll come to you. Wait till the microphone comes to you because everyone wants to hear the, the question. And by the way, don't be embarrassed. No question is off limits. And if I don't know the answer, I'll tell you. And if you don't ask the question, someone else is burning to know the answer anyway. Yes, sir. Okay, so I take the boys to the museum of, the field museum. And we've got all the dinosaurs and all the big layouts and, and 40, you know, million different artifacts of saying this is 300 years old, 300 million years old. How do I explain to the boys, oh, this whole place is wrong, but do... Well, you have to say that these are man's, man's ideas about the age of these fossils, that the fossils weren't found with labels on them. Man has... has use methods that are faulty to date these rocks, whereas God in his word was there and he's told us the age of these things. And so that's really the simplest way to explain it to kids. You keep on reminding them that God's word is true from the beginning, that the history in Genesis is a real history, it does matter and explains the world around us, whereas the scientists, the scientists have rejected God's word and their methods are based on the rejection of God's Word and therefore they're making assumptions, they're making determinations that are based on invalid an approach to their, to their science. So that's, a, that's basically what you've got to keep telling them. When did the fossils form? During Noah's flood. Billions of dead things buried in rock lies laid down all over the earth. And so you, 
You have to start teaching them from an early age that God's Word is true and we can explain all these things based on what God's Word tells us. And that's a tough job. But that's why, you know, more and more people are homeschooling their kids or sending their kids to Christian schools where they know the, the Word of God is going to be upheld as the absolute authority. And uh, those who reject the authority of God's Word are going to de- more and more deca- uh, go into to moral decay as a consequence. So that's a very good issue and it's one that parents need to need to be aware of. By the way, let me say here, uh, not everyone has the opportunity to be able to send their kids to a Christian school or homeschool. Um, but, you know, I know folks in Australia, oh, I, didn't, I didn't get, I was raised in a Christian home. I had to go to a public school, but it was because of my church and my family that instilled in, in me the authority of God's word that I was able to stand against the tide of indoctrination. And I know families in Australia that do that. They train their kids from an early age to trust God's Word and that inoculates them so that they're not influenced by what the world says. So it's very important. You have to train your children in the ways of the Lord and when they're old, they won't depart from it. Another question, this lady here. Oh, over here, okay. Yes, um, that was a pretty detailed explanation of rock dating. And um, I think we're probably all here in the minority on the um, education of that. So it would seem to me that the scientific community should have an overseer of a committee that could validate or invalidate rock dating methods because it seems to me that that whole scientific dating method is askew and needs to be reevaluated. So why isn't that happening? And are you the only Christian geologist? There's got to be some kind of grassroots effort. Well, there's other Christian geologists like me who, who believe in God's word and, and uh, the flood and the creation account. The interesting thing is that the geology, the geologist community trust that those who do the rock dating are very, very minor group. And uh, they've got They've got world-class laboratories. I mean, they've spent millions and millions of taxpayers' dollars building these laboratories, I can tell you that now. And, and so the analyses are very good and most of geologists don't understand these problems. They've never been shown that these prob- there are these problems because the reality is, see, I worked in the mining industry for some years and I was exploring for, for minerals. And you really don't need the millions of years to be able to go and explore for uranium, for example, or gold. There's, there's easy ways to find it. You just go sampling soils or, or stream sediments or you, you have a Geiger counter and a helicopter and flying over the landscape and where it goes berserk, you know, there's uranium down there. So you don't need millions of years and so most practical geologists don't realise these issues and therefore they just accept, blindly accept because... You see, the heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked and they're not interested in God's word, so they accept what this, clo- this little cartel says over here. And you'll never be able to form a committee that, that validates their, their work or not because here's the issue. You know, I, I tried to get samples in the Grand Canyon for a, re- for a research project, but because I was creationist, 
they stopped me getting the samples. I had to file a lawsuit to be able to get the samples to show it was worldview discrimination. And that's the problem that we face. We've had samples that we wanted to send to laboratories that refused to analyse them because we're creationists. And so we're up against this, this monolithic system that is, is opposed to us and opposed to God's Word. But hey, we don't have to be afraid because God is on our side. He will validate His Word regardless of our efforts. Our efforts. We have to, we're not called to be successful, we're called to be faithful. And we're called to give a testimony to what we believe and why we believe it. God will do the rest of the work. We just have to be faithful. But that's a very good question. There's, there's no way that these scientists are being held to account. But hey, remember when um, <clears throat> Elisha thought that he was the last remaining prophet? No, God said, no, there's 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. There's many out there scientists who believe God's word from the very first verse, including a lot of geologists. They have to hide because they need their paycheck. Over here, yes, you've been waiting patiently. Yeah. Um, I, you touched on it a little bit, but um, why are there no human fossils? Okay, along with well, the... because God said to Noah, and he repeated it, that he was going to destroy the earth with man. And it says, the, the Hebrew says it was going to blot man out. Okay, now remember what happened to King Saul? He was told to go and wipe out the Amalekites. And he got into trouble because he spared the king and some of the animals. He was supposed to be totally obliterate. See, when God judges, he judges absolutely. Why did, why did God kill all those animals to make fossils during the flood? Well, the animals weren't innocent. It says the world was filled with violence. The dinosaurs were ripping one another apart. And so when God judges, he removes well, why did he leave the, 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 the fossils and not the humans? Well, the fossils are a testimony to his judgment, but the humans, he didn't want people to worship their ancestors. He said he was going to blot them out. And so it is true that we don't find any genuine human remains that we can say are from the pre-flood world. The only hint we get is uh, in some parts of the geologic record, we get phosphate rock. There's places where it's mined for fertiliser. And the phosphate rock has the same composition as our teeth and bones. So it's possible that when the fountains of the great deep broke open, they were hot volcanic waters that were acidic. They dissolved all the human flesh and the bones. And then when they went to cooler areas, the phosphate precipitated out in those layers. I don't know, but we've, we've, we've got to be honest with the evidence. God hasn't left any record of the pre-flood world of humans. No record of civilization. There's no genuinely verifiable artifacts or human remains from the pre-flood world. All the human remains that we find are in the surficial layers that represent the people that lived after the flood. After the flood. And, and by the way, I know it takes up an extra minute, but in Africa, you find the, the primate fossils in layers where, above which you've, below where you've got the human remains. Well, what happened after the flood? People disobeyed God and stayed at Babel, but the animals dispersed. So the animals got to Africa first 
and then the humans later. That's why they're buried in that order. And the geologists come along and say, oh, this must have evolved into this. No, they were just buried at different times. Thank you very much.